Hello everybody, this is a trigger warning slash warning just in general that this show is 18 plus and uh, so if you're below those ages please don't watch this, please avoid this show, skip this one. Um, there are themes covered in this particular episode that may be distressing or upsetting for listeners so this is your warning, so proceed with caution. Um, it might be worth skipping this one entirely. Felicity was a wonderful guest. This is a good show. It's just that there are some topics that sort of catch you by surprise uh, that even I wasn't expecting. And um, it's just a warning for everybody. So just bear that in mind. And thank you very much. Hello, and welcome back to the Christian Reef podcast. Today's guest hails all the way from San Francisco. Her name is Felicity Azora, and we'll be speaking all about near-death experiences and much, much more today. Welcome, Felicity. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, and I'm so glad that we finally got to do this because we've been corresponding over email since March, and it is wow. the middle of May. My gosh, has it really been that long? Oh my god! Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, do you know? Actually, I'll just say on the side that I, it's actually a real pleasure to have you here for a number of reasons. One, I'm very excited to just do a show. I love doing this show. B, we're going to be talking about a lot of interesting topics, stuff that I just find fascinating. And C, I've had a lot of like weirdly uh, cancellations and no shows lately, which is something that happens in the podcasting game. I've mentioned it a few times on the show recently, but it is incredibly frustrating, especially when you've got an audience, a growing audience who are like excited about each and every show. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I get people sending in questions, all this sort of stuff. And it's, it's just like, I feel really bad because people then say like, oh, why didn't this person show up? And I'm like, ah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just the host. Like I, I try my best, but you know. Um, so yeah, I believe me. I'm very, very happy to have you. <laughs> okay, I've only interviewed three people on my podcast so far, and so I've yet to have a no call, no show. But now I know to expect that at some point. Yeah, it's gonna happen. Um, I hope it doesn't happen very often to you um oh gosh three episodes in what's your show about tell us about your show real quick oh my show is about professional cuddling but it's mainly me talking to myself i interviewed one person in maybe 2019 and she's not a professional cuddler but i still thought she was cool so i had her on my show and i recently interviewed two professional cuddlers so one of those interviews will be out before the end of may the second one i've yet to edit that audio but i'll try to publish it for june okay this is fascinating because i remember you telling me this in your initial emails to me and i was like what what do you mean professional cuddler so this is a thing uh please explain this to me how does professional cuddling work i don't mean to be i'm not trying to be mean here laughing if it's a genuine thing it's just in my mind and the way you phrased it was interesting as well you said i'm a professional cuddler and this has got me in dangerous situations and i'm like Oh my gosh, you ha- you have to tell me. And also, I'm worried for your safety. <laughs> but please tell me more. Okay, so it's a delicate tightrope. It's a delicate tightrope walk mm. because I don't want to downplay the dangers of being a cuddle therapist, but I also want to acknowledge that most victims of domestic violence, kidnapping, trafficking, all that, they're normally abused by someone they already personally know. And so 
when I go on other podcasts, I often get questions like, aren't you scared of being kidnapped, trafficked, all of that. And I mean, in general, <laughs> yes, I am. But I also know the statistics. I kind of have to be vigilant about these kinds of things. And so it's, it was, I was in so many precarious situations during my first year as a snuggle partner, but I learned a lot of safety tips within my five years of experience. And I am happy to share those safety tips with almost anyone. I, like I said, it's a tightrope walk. I, I do want to share this vital information on podcasts, but I also wonder if I'm compromising my safety if I just say to the whole world, this is what I do to, you know, preserve and protect myself. But um, as a snuggle therapist, I, I cuddle strangers for a living and I've gotten a lot of I've gotten a wide array of reactions. Like I've I've heard people say, oh yeah, I, I do that too. Like I, you know, at, at hospitals, I'll snuggle newborn babies because babies need, you know, warmth and human connection. I'm like, that, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not going to hospitals in like a very controlled environment and hugging harmless infants. I am often, you know, going to hotels, going to Airbnbs, going to people's homes and like, trusting them and hugging them for hours at a time and it's it's very misunderstood so i created a podcast for it okay i have so many questions um how do you firstly ensure your safety like you mentioned there for example oh i might go to like an airbnb and it's like I got to imagine that you know, as, as a as a young woman, you know, going to these places alone is like you're. I mean, you're asking for trouble. Like, how how do you ensure your own safety? Like, what measures do you put in place, or like, how do you, if you even can, like, vet to make sure that someone is, you know, not a psycho? Like, I don't know. Like, how do you navigate that? I would say every practitioner has a different vetting process. Like. For some people, they'll be like, oh, I, I need to make sure that every person I cuddle has a job so that they can afford my rates. And I've met people who cuddle those in law enforcement and the military. Hmm. Me, I do ask people what their job is before I cuddle them. Um, I mean, A, so that they have money so that they can afford my rates, but also I don't cuddle people in law enforcement because I feel like if someone ends up not liking me, they can easily just say whatever and then be like, okay, well, now I have the means to arrest you. And I live in the United States. You, maybe if you're a lawyer, you have like some, some leverage uh, with the police, but I, I'm not some kind of attorney. Uh, so if someone doesn't like me and they're in law enforcement, they, they can pretty much get away with anything. And so I, I genuinely do want to give people a therapeutic experience, but I also reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. Of course. Yeah. I mean, 
I suppose a lot of it is just kind of like trust in your your judgment, your intuition, like how a situation looks and whatnot. But oh my god, I, it just sounds like the most stressful kind of scary thing ever. Like, um, tell me how you got into this. Like, where did this start? Well, like a lot of people who enter the adult industry, I started because I needed the money, mm -hmm. and. There are a a lot of side hustle blogs online, which I hate, but a lot of those blogs will publish very clickbaity entries and sometimes make TikToks about how lucrative of a side hustle professional cuddling is. But um I would say most professional cuddlers hate that depiction because it's a therapeutic service and it's just, we, we live in late stage capitalism. That's why side hustle blogs exist. People making money off of telling other people that there are such a, there are such things as low risk, high reward um, jobs. <laughs> but um, I, purposefully named my podcast Pro Cuddle Hustle because I'm assuming that most people, when they're Googling this, they're like side hustle, professional cuddling. And then uh, my resource pops up and I have the balls to say, no, this is not a low risk, high reward kind of job because there is no such a thing. Anyone who tells you that is just someone trying to win the game of late stage capitalism. They're trying to sell you this idea that you can be 100% safe and make a lot of money. Everyone's trying to sell something, aren't they? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Okay. Here's an interesting angle to this. So one thing I'm dealing with a lot as, um, as I increase with the things I do online and stuff is this idea of parasocial relationships. Oh, now, yeah. right. Now with what you're doing, I mean, hugging as a concept is is a very intimate thing. I understand that it you can kind of detach in the same way that someone might say detach, sort of more mature. I'll just say it, sex. Um, you know, people. Yeah, loveless sex exists. Right. I've had it. it. It's a <laughs> it's a thing that happens. It's a thing that people do, and. Um, I imagine in, 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 in many ways, hugging can be, can be the same, but like, I don't know, like for me personally, when I think about hugging, like there are different types of hugs, obviously, but like, I imagine the type of hug that you are giving someone in this particular context is supposed to be intimate. There's supposed to be quite a lot of intention, compassion involved in that. And that's where it begins to blur the lines. Cause it's like, well, I'm a professional. I'm doing this for a living. I'm providing you a service. But at the same time, said service is something that's very passionate and intimate, and it's kind of impossible almost not to be. So how do you navigate that particular That aspect? is such a good question. Because when I think of, when I hear parasocial relationships, I immediately think of online relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, the people who will like listen to every single interview I have on another podcast, follow my social media for years, but then never meet me in person. Mm -hmm. And I hate it. I hate receiving an email from someone saying, 
I've been on the fence about cuddling you for five years or something like that. And then, you know, we, we go back and forth with emails for one to two years and it's like, buddy, schedule a day and a time because I can't just be going back and forth with you for a year. That's very rude. And so when it comes to in-person parasocial relationships, I'll say when I meet a client, I, I show up as myself. I, I don't really hold back on my uh, personal experiences. Like when I say to people, you know, I've had a really, really rough day or rough week. I mean it. I don't pretend that I've had a glorious month if my month has been shit. Um, I don't expect the clients to console me because I'm supposed to be consoling them. But, you know, when people ask me, how are you? I, I answer honestly. And um, I cannot control people's emotions. I cannot tell someone you're not allowed to fall in love with me. You, just, you can barely control your own emotions. So <laughs> what makes you think you can control someone else's emotions? And right. um, what does bother me is when people say, oh, because I've fallen in love with you, I cannot, um, I cannot compensate you anymore. As if loving someone means you don't have to financially take care of them. Like, imagine if your parent told you, uh, I'm only financially taking care of you because you have no other access to capital instead of I'm financially taking care of you because I love you. Mm. Yeah. So, so sayings like that does cause some kind of dissonance with me. Like, so, so you love me, but you don't want to make sure that I have food on my table. Make it make sense. So like, how do you react to people saying to you, you know, Hey, I love you. I, I, this has changed now. Like, I mean, obviously the first reaction would be to just generally be like, listen, we're going to have to kind of end this because it's no longer appropriate. But like, how do you deal with that? And how have you I, I don't say I love you back in a serious <laughs> way. Um, and there's a variation of this because I've had men be like, are, are we friends? Are we like, are we like best friends? Because you're like the closest woman to me who isn't a blood relative. And it's, I hate how it turns my stomach into knots because of course I want my life to be filled with lots of friends and lots of love. But I feel like when a lot of men ask a woman, especially a woman that they're paying for their time, are, are, are we friends? That's like code for, do I have to keep paying you to be nice to me? Can you like start being nice to me for free? And when you meet a woman in her workplace, it doesn't matter if she works at a bookstore, at a strip club, professional color, whatever. If you meet a woman in her book or in her workplace, it is, I would say, incredibly rude to be like, how about you stop doing this job for me? Because I'm like so awesome that you you should give up your stream of revenue. Mm. It's it's mind boggling. But a lot of people think they're oh so special, wonderful, magical that women 
whom they have a purely transactional relationship with should just give up their way of putting food on the table. So what you're saying, it sounds like the majority of your client base is male then. Oh, yeah. Um, I've yet to have my first female client, but female cuddle clients do exist. And what kind of age range are we talking as far as the men are concerned? Um, I would say that the professional cuddlers who have their own domain blog and they have all these fancy expensive certifications and they mostly advertise on, you know, Facebook and Google, I feel like they attract the 40 and up demographic more. I mainly advertise through social media. So not saying that older people don't use social media, but a lot of younger people are um, tech savvy. And Makes sense. So I attract a lot of the younger clientele. And like, how do people re- reach out to you exactly? I mean, I suppose it's, it's not kind of like the standard way that you'd reach out to someone about something. Like, how, how, does, how does it sort of come together? I ask people to email me their uh, screening information Mm. and uh, sometimes people text that information to me but I do prefer giving out my phone numbers through email. I I try not to advertise my phone number on my social media because I don't want to get a bunch of like spam. Um, You have like a separate phone or is it your personal Oh yeah, I do have a separate phone number. Okay, all right. <laughs> just the old, like I don't know. You're clearly quite a young lady, and I'm just like looking at this like stressful older person. Like, oh my god, has she has she done this? Has she done that? Like, I'm just stressing. Like, <laughs> sorry, I've made a ton of mistakes, right? And uh, I still make mistakes every now and then, but nowhere near as often as when I first started. Okay, let's run. I wanna. I wanna. Tr- I like to kind of go negative then positive with this sort of stuff so okay let's start with the negatives um worst client interactions and how you dealt with it so it's like a positive uh, angle to it but definitely yeah. sexual assault oh my gosh okay. definitely be the worst right i'm sorry to hear that how how did um, you get a, like were you able to at least get the person prosecuted like you know get some oh, justice no. for that um, I've met some body workers who try to process or yeah, try to take um abusive clients to court. I it's I court cases in the United States take forever. You can be completely no fault, someone else like crashed into your car and it'll take two years of of going to court to get your uh check in the mail it's the justice system in the u.s is so slow and that is even if you do get that you know one thousand dollar check in the end um and so i've tried to take abusers in my personal life uh to court and that didn't work and so i i assume that if if it doesn't work in the personal life it's not going to work in the work life i'm really sorry to hear that um it just sucks like all the women in my life that I talk to all seem to have like a similar story in some shape or form and it's just really distressing and sad to hear that um 
I try to find the silver lining because at least they're being open with you about that. Because a lot of people, they'll like literally not tell anyone for five years, 10 years, 20 years. They'll, they'll just not tell anyone. And they'll mm. try to take this to the grave. Like women should suffer in silence when no one should suffer in silence. No. Given that that happened, like how it must have obviously made you question whether or not you should continue your professions. Like, how did you sort of move forward thereafter with that in mind? Well, I think back to why I started doing this in the first place. Yes, I did it because I needed the money, but also because it's a job that isn't physically demanding. I've worked jobs where I would be, you know, walking back and forth for seven hours straight, eight hours straight, maybe nine hours straight. And I would get paid maybe $600 a month for doing mm. that. And I would have to, you know, give up my weekends, give up the time that I normally spend with my grandparents. And it's just, I chose to be a professional color because I get to choose when I work. I get to choose when I go on vacation. I get to choose how long I stay with a client. Like I have this rule where if I'm cuddling someone for over two hours, we have to go get food. I am not going to starve myself mm -hmm. for a client. I'll, I'll never do that. And I didn't have this kind of freedom when I worked in retail. I didn't have this freedom when I worked in childcare. And I love working with children. And children definitely didn't sexually assault me. So those are just some of the factors that made me choose the job that I'm working today. And um it i knew from a young age that i wanted to become a teacher and i tried doing the whole going to university to get a, a political science degree to get a teaching credential afterwards and then maybe graduate school so i could become a high school teacher but i i just cannot complete undergraduate school while there is a pandemic going on and it was bad enough in 2020 but now we're in 2023 where people pretend like like covid is a non-issue it, it's still an issue and um i i got covid for the second time this year and the second time is worse than the first time and i say this as someone who's like fully vaccinated with all the boosters so it's just being a college student during a pandemic ruined my mental health, but it was, it was honestly snuggling my clients and hearing them tell me, thank you for doing this. Thank you, provide, thank you for providing this therapeutic service. That improved my mental health. It was not only a good experience for them, it was a good experience for me. And I, I mean, you love podcasting and I love podcasting. If I, I mean, if I stopped professional cuddling today, I guess I still would have things I could talk about for my podcast, but then I would have to, I guess, stop podcasting sooner because I would have 
less information that I could share with the world. And that would break my heart. Uh, I really love podcasting, even though it's not something I profit off of. It, I, I've i invested thousands of dollars into my podcasts, and I feel like nobody knows that because I have you know less than 30 episodes, but I, I genuinely care about my podcast and I don't think any amount of bad clients I see has enough power to make me stop doing a job that I could probably do until I die and fund the vacations that I want to go on and give me something to talk about <laughs> to myself and to uh, my interview guests and it's just, in a way, it's empowering. It's empowering to keep going even when you face obstacles that you never anticipated facing. Mm -hmm. No, I, I get what you mean. And um, I think with what, with how you kind of built that up as well about how this became a thing that, you know, you started as a side hustle and then it became something that, is part of you it's part of what you offer and i've been there i've had moments when you know life just was not it <laughs> you know everything's just not going well and sometimes the things that i kept doing like this stuff online ultimately became a point of like well i might not be okay and things might not feel okay but at least i can offer this and make other people feel okay and that, in essence, kind of slowly but surely makes you feel better and stuff. And it's like, you know, like, for instance, what, what you do for a living, like, it, it's such a powerful thing. You know, you think about hugging as a concept. Like, I, I don't often receive hugs. I, like, so when I do, I, I'm like, I savor that. That's, like, amazing, you know. Like, mm -hmm. don't often get to see the families. When I do, it's like, make the most of this. Don't know when the next time is, is going to be. And it's like as you mentioned, like sometimes people can be going through like really difficult times and maybe that hug is, you know, keeping them going. I don't know. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a tough, tough one. And uh, I wanted to kind of use that as a way to segue into more positive stuff. Okay. Um, what would you say are the kind of most positive experiences you've had through, through this work? Like maybe the best case scenarios where it's led to a person really kind of benefiting in a major way so i don't know if you've ever gone through a friendship breakup but i i wish friendship breakups were spoken about more often and i've had some regulars stop talking to me and it, it genuinely feels like a friendship breakup to me. And mm -hmm. no one owes me an explanation as to why they stopped seeing me. They could stop seeing me because of money reasons, because they moved elsewhere. Like, whatever reason they have, it's valid. It's their life. They can do whatever they want. But it's... I, I really do try to remember the things that the people I meet tell me. And I... I've had some people stop seeing me, but then 
in a year or two years, something like that, they reach out and they're like, hey, it's been a while. Can we please catch up? And it it, it melts my heart that they still think of me, even though they haven't seen me in, in a year or two. And it's just, I don't know if I would get this out of other jobs. Like, I used to work at a cafeteria. I definitely would not get someone saying, oh my gosh, I remember you. I haven't been at this cafeteria in two years, but I'm so <laughs> glad I see your face. Um, and it's it's so rewarding to make a difference in other people's lives because that's why young me wanted to become a teacher because I had teachers who made a difference in my life. But there are so many problems within academia. Like, I would hate to tell children, hey, I had to give you an F for this, which will impact your GPA, which will impact the likelihood of you getting into your dream college. I hate that part of academia. I would love to just be a teacher and not have to do those shitty things, like tell them you only have four bathroom passes for the entire semester. Like, fuck that shit. I want to teach. And through my podcast, through my writing, through all of those artistic mediums, I'm able to fulfill that desire without having to do the whole like parent-teacher conference and uh, all that ugly stuff. I get it. I get it. Let's move it forward. And because mm-hmm. uh, actually I, I brought you on to talk about near-death experiences, but like I couldn't not talk about like your profession and okay. um i just i just think it's it's absolutely fascinating and um just like the the way that you're helping people um keep doing what you do and be safe just remain <laughs> safe please for the love of god <laughs> right let's talk near death experiences one of the things you told me is that you experienced a concussion at the age of 18 walk us through this process Let me preface this by saying I have a very strained relationship with my mother. And so I went to public school and as a kid, I was never taught this is what happens when you break a bone. This is what happens when you get a concussion. I was never taught any of that i i was pretty much taught if you have sex you'll get an std and then you'll get pregnant and then you'll like then your vagina is ruined something like that and or then you'll (laughs) get an abortion and then your vagina is ruined or something like that and so i wish i was taught more about my body and yes the scientific aspect like These are the different types of muscles and these are the different layers of skin. But I wish I was also taught harm reduction. I was not taught this is what you do if you're recovering from an eating disorder. I was not taught this is what you do if you think you've had too many alcoholic drinks. (laughs) 
my mom is not the kind of person who values harm reduction. She, like so many other moms, grew up during the Reagan era, you know, war on drugs, all that propaganda. And so when I got a concussion at 18, I genuinely didn't know that something was wrong with me. And I literally had throbbing in my head for about nine, maybe 10 hours. And that's when I finally told my mom, hey, I think I need to go to the emergency room. And like many other adults, she was like, why didn't you tell me this sooner? But that's what happens when you don't teach children about their bodies. They'll literally break a bone and think, oh, it'll like be normal in, you know, 30 mm. minutes. Um, and so I went to the emergency room and then the doctor told me that I needed to get some sleep and that that would heal <laughs> that would heal me but uh, my mom was definitely I would say she definitely went the carceral route because I had gotten the concussion in a locker room and so I was sticking my head in my locker getting my backpack or whatever out and then I guess someone was like walking by and in that momentum slammed the locker door on my head I I don't think anyone like I'm sure kids like kids can be rowdy they can roughhouse but I genuinely don't think anyone had malicious intent and was like I'm gonna give someone a concussion today I don't mm -hmm. I, I think it was purely accidental but my mom she was like no 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 we need to like report this to all the gym teachers and tell them to be on the lookout for like some some bad faith person who's like out there slamming locker doors on people's heads like i i think high school movies do have a lot of truth to them but i i think the whole like shoving people into lockers like putting wedgies in lockers i think that's something that is super dramatized like i don't think yes bullying happens but i don't think bullying happens in that way but my mom was like super carceral about it and i was like mom you're making me very uncomfortable i'm not gonna go on a witch hunt i'm not going to try to give a classmate detention or suspension or or any of that i just i just wanted to focus on my health but you know my mom is not that kind of person and i wish she was the kind of person who just focused on health and hopefully she gets better in the future what did your kind of recovery process look like for that oh well i'm able to laugh about it now because um when i got a concussion i had to take the entire day off and my parents rarely ever let me skip a day in school but they're like you know what you had a micro concussion a doctor uh confirmed that so you're not going to be going you're not going to be going to school the next day and the next day Donald Trump got elected and so i missed the entire day of school 
when everybody found out. Um, and yeah, there were some protests at my school. Teachers were crying and I missed all of that. But I think I, I remember going to a coffee shop. This was a coffee shop I went to religiously when I was in high school. And I was telling the barista who was there like every day, yeah, got a concussion. And, you know, Donald Trump got elected. And, <laughs> and then the barista was like, wait, did Donald Trump getting elected give you the concussion? <laughs> so so I, I can joke about that now because, well, I can laugh about it now. Wow, Jesus. Um, yeah, I think you mentioned that you'd had like other near-death experiences. Like, just run us through this. Like, mm -hmm. what, what experiences have you had? And uh, then let's, let's sort of like delve into that a little bit more. So I didn't mention this earlier, but uh, one of the reasons why being a professional cuddler is great is because it's not a physically demanding job and I have a disability called food-dependent exercise-induced anaphylaxis. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I believe, a very rare disability. But uh, for me, it's, I, I get, I get an allergic reaction if I exercise shortly after eating foods that I'm allergic to. And it's very fickle because I've had days where I would go out dancing about three hours after eating a pizza and I would break out into hives. But then there are other days where I eat shellfish and then maybe 90 minutes later, I do some vigorous activity and I don't get um, an allergic reaction. So it's very fickle. And Can I just interject for a second. You, you said that it's only with foods that you were allergic to. Yes. So, so I'm allergic to shellfish, alcohol, nuts, and non-legume wheat. So but, uh, okay, a lot of food. Right. So this is kind of yeah. like in your discovery phase, like you're like, you didn't know that you were allergic to all these different things. And then you find out like three hours later, like kind of in dramatic <sighs> well, fashion. When I was 13, I saw an allergenist and he ran some blood tests. And thankfully, when the results were concluded it was all accurate so many other disabled people they have to run all of these hormone tests blood tests for years and years and years of their lives until they finally get the accurate result but for me i i i got the accurate results after one visit to the allergenist's office when i was a minor and yeah i wish I knew this about myself when I was maybe seven or six years old, but at least I got to know this about myself when I was still a kid. Mm -hmm. And I, I love dancing. I don't think I should give up all physical activity to accommodate my disability. So I'm going to keep dancing and I'm going to keep professional cuddling because I don't have to walk up hills or run or do any of that. So how have you learned to kind of live with this condition? Like in what ways, other than kind of obviously avoiding certain foods and such, how, how has it changed your life? Or how do you, how does it affect your day-to-day -day life? I 
sadly was not really taught how to cook when I was a kid. And that's something everyone should learn, not just people with FDEI and. But uh, as an adult, I, I don't live with my parents anymore. And so I get to cook for... I can cook whenever I want. And there have been many times where I would go to a restaurant and uh, the people there, they don't ask me about my food allergies and it's and it's strange because there have been days where i would be asked about my allergies and then i would not have any physical activity planned for the rest of the day but then there would be days where i do have some like physical activities but then the waiter wouldn't would not ask me about my food allergies and it's just when you cook you know what you're putting in your body and cooking has, in a way, brought me closer to my significant other because, well, my significant other sadly cannot visit his mom often because she lives on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. And so I've been asking him to teach me how to cook the recipes that she made for him when he was a kid. And I'll be honest, not the most recent one. It was very bland, <laughs> but um, I was like, if I add like onion and garlic and all these spices to this rice dish, am I like gentrifying your mom's recipe when you were a kid? And he's like, no, 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 that's fine. If you think it needs more seasoning, you can add as much seasoning as you want. <laughs> that's always a point of contention, isn't it? Spe especially when you, <laughs> the amount of times I've been sitting at like a dinner table, someone like has been cooking a wonderful meal, they bring it over and then someone immediately doesn't, without even thinking, just goes and grabs like for the salt. It's like, you didn't even try the food, man. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Jesus. Um, one question I got to ask, actually, just throwing it back to before our discussion about your cuddling. Um, obviously, probably should have asked if you had a partner, because I think that that does actually affect a lot of things. What does your partner think of your profession? Like, how does that? What's his opinion on it? How how do you guys deal with that? Must be awkward. <laughs> he's he's so proud of me, and I oh, could awesome. definitely imagine someone wanting to date a fringe person like me so they could tell their friends and family can you believe that felicity does this like oh my god but he's not like that at all he's very proud of me and when okay so i i speak with <laughs> radical honesty because my job requires that i be a radically open-minded person so i also speak radically honestly um this goes back to the whole when people ask how are you i tell them the truth and so uh my partner has been like i'm kind of i'm kind of reluctant to introduce you to my conservative family members because i know you like speak radically honestly because it's just i like giving people the the benefit of the doubt i like to assume that good things happen if i speak to someone new and i think that people can change when you give them grace and mm, it, interesting. that's one of the beautiful parts about podcasting because it's a 
it's an audio format. I'm not here to judge you on how you look. And yeah, when I'm professionally cuddling people, I I I see what they look like, but I'm I'm not there to judge them on how they look. I'm there to just connect with them on a human to human level. And it's like last night my partner was talking to his mom on the phone and he was saying all these things about me that I never would have expected him to say about me because you know his mom is a boomer she grew up with Reaganomics and all of that and so it's just that's such a trigger word that these points, isn't it? <laughs> like that word just like has negative connotations stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry boomers love you it's okay it was just he wasn't it sounded like he wasn't speaking with her like a Mom, please don't get frustrated. Please don't judge her. But she does this. It was more of like I'm proud of her, and she does this, and she does that, and I think it's great. Yeah, I mean, I think the most awesome aspect to this is like that he's supportive, and it's not a, mm-hmm. you know because you you could uh, you could be with someone who's madly jealous, and that would be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's uh, that's what you want, really, isn't it? In a relationship, it's just someone who's supportive. Let's imagine that. <laughs> um let's okay let's get back to near-death experiences with the experiences that you've had and this is the question that i've kind of asked all my guests so far that have have experienced near-death experiences when you were out during these experiences was there anything untoward you saw anything that you recall talk to us about your near-death experiences Ooh, um, I I assumed that I would at some point bring up suicide, and it was, and so I have a story. It doesn't it doesn't have to do with me being suicidal, but I've had I've had cuddle clients who were suicidal, and I. I know that this is a super controversial topic because some people think, well, if you know someone who is suicidal, you need to stay by them. Mm-hmm. You need to stick. You need to stay by their side forever and ever. And there are other people who are like, if your mental health is declining and being with a suicidal person is making your mental health worse, then it's okay to walk away. And I'm not here to take sides, but I I do have a story. So I used to have a cuddle client who was suicidal and um, I found his mother on Facebook and I reached out to her and I was like, hey, you don't know me, but I am close with your son. And it saddens me to say that he is suicidal. Please talk to him. And I think, I think his mom had a conversation with him and it went well. His mom didn't say anything to me besides, thank you for telling me this. And then mm. we just never corresponded again. But I'm assuming after he and his mom had a conversation, he reached out to me and was like, hey, I want to invite you to this one event that's happening in a hotel conference room. 
And so I was like, okay, I'll meet up with you. And mind you, he was not like compensating me for my time. I was like, I feel bad for this person because he's considered suicide in recent history. And I don't know if his mom spoke to him at all. Maybe she did and it made things worse. Like, I don't know what was happening in his personal life. But I was like, you know what? I'll just do this for him for free. A uh, big mistake. And so I get there and it's a like a recruiting event for a pyramid scheme. Oh, no. But at the time, I didn't know what pyramid schemes were. No. So I was listening to a bunch of people talk into a microphone but they were being so vague. And I was like, I have no idea what people are talking about. And so I called my parents because I was, I still lived with my parents at the time. They didn't know I was a professional cuddler, but I called them and I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm at this uh, conference at this hotel. Please pick me up. And thankfully the hotel wasn't too far away from Please where my parents me. lived. But on, on the drive home, I decided to call another cuddle client that I had at the time. He and I don't speak anymore, but I called him and I was like, hey, what's that thing you, I think you briefly mentioned in passing is, is it called, what, what was that thing? And I tried to describe it and he's like, oh, pyramid scheme. And I was like, yeah, wow. you, tell me what that is. And he's like, okay, this is how pyramid schemes work. And it, it just sucks how pyramid schemes, they like prey on single moms, like hmm broke college students and suicidal people like they prey on some of the most marginalized people and it just i had to cut off all communication with him like yes i should have or maybe i should have stayed with him and try to talk him out of the pyramid scheme but it was just so it's a tricky it's I a tricky to. one i think i get where you're coming from the kind of professional obligation because it's like where where do you draw the line? Like you you have to think about your own safety. You think about you have to think about the needs of the client, but also mm -hmm. as, as far as like the services that you offer. Mm -hmm. I mean, like if you were a therapist, maybe it'd be a little bit different. Maybe you could refer them to someone else. There's things you could mm -hmm. do. Like with what you do, I don't know that there was really anything you could do other than to tell them like this is a really bad idea you need to get away from this like what else can you say really in the scenario like that yeah there's there are few professional cuddlers who make it past the 10 year mark i've i've heard of okay i probably shouldn't name names but i i know of a professional cuddler who retired after nine years and it i'm just speculating but it seems like the reason why she retired is because throughout all the years of snuggling her clients, she would just absorb all the pain that they were carrying. And it, it became so unhealthy for her that she just had to leave permanently. And it is my job to hold space for people. And it, it's my job to listen and be empathetic, but it is unhealthy to try to be like Atlas and carry the weight of the world. My job is not to carry the weight of the world. One person cannot do that. That leads to burnout. Did you ever end up like dating a client or having a sort of inappropriate relationship that you had to like end or something to that effect? Oh, yeah. So... 
I started when I was 19, and we all do stupid shit when we're 19. <laughs> like, that yes, one, we do. <laughs> like, that one client I spoke about, whom I called on the phone and asked him to explain to me what a pyramid scheme was, I tried to date him, and I even oh like, no, you didn't date pyramid to, scheme to your guy. Parents. And he was like, "I'm not going to introduce you to my parents," uh, but uh, I, I'm glad oh. I I left that. You dated pyramid scheme guy? Come on, man! No, not pyramid scheme guy. The guy I oh, called. Oh, the guy. Like, oh, the guy. What, right, right. what a pyramid scheme is? Because I think I tried to get. I think someone tried to recruit me. Yeah. So there was like a development. Okay. Let, let's let's reframe this question a little bit how did that kind of transition into that form of relationship because obviously that was a client of yours and while you were younger and you know we make silly mistakes when we're younger you know you still had your a degree of professionalism back then so you must have kind of thought like hmm, this is inappropriate clearly you know i need to end this etc like how did that transition into that well like i said i was financially unstable when i began and so this guy was like, you know, I could have you move in with me so you don't have to live with your parents anymore. And I'll also like take care of all the bills. And hmm. that was that was like a dream come true to 19 year old me. And uh, like a lot of traditional immigrant parents, they tell their daughters don't move out of my house until you get married with a man. And it's just old-fashioned so women should just never experience living by themselves women have to always be dependent on a man and yes there are many healthy relationships out there where somebody is financially dependent on another person but just telling your daughter i don't know if the sons get ta taught this but t telling your daughters they can only move out if they're married to a man like like, what if you're not compatible? I, I fully endorse living with a partner before marrying them. And, like, to tell your... It's just that kind of mentality teaches girls, you instead of marrying for love, you should marry into money. Mm. And, yes, money can make life easier, but it doesn't always make you happier. Like, I'm pretty much every single person I've dated since I was 19, or not 19, uh, pretty much every person I've dated since I was 20 made at least $100,000 a year. And I can assure you, money doesn't equal happiness. It makes life easier. It doesn't necessarily, sorry, the alarm is going off, but it doesn't always make you happier. And so... I wish I was told instead that I should learn how to provide for myself so I have high standards. Like, money is bare fucking minimum. I think if you're going to live with someone, be in a relationship with someone, marry someone, they should love you and understand boundaries and create a strong stable foundation built on trust i think 
I'm just like trashing my parents on this podcast, but I, I think <laughs> my parents didn't raise me right. Right. And I think what they say about marrying into money is untrue. I, like so many, so many women were told, if you marry into money, you never have to work a day in your life. Whereas, well, I, I do my research and it seems like if you marry into money, you work every single day of your life. And I don't want to do that. Based on what? Was in like um, parenting, like domestics, or just having to also work in addition to all that? Like the emotional labor. Right. Oh my gosh. Having to um, bend to another person's frenetic emotions. And I'm not saying that being emotional is bad, but mm-hmm. like when you marry someone purely because they have money and you don't, you pretty much are at their mercy. It's crazy to think about really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Especially, yeah, if if it's a scenario or a dynamic, I should say, where one person is solely relying on the other person and then the other person then, I don't know, changes their mind and changes the scenario. It's like, what do you do then? Like, mm-hmm. I look at, because... I think it's quite clear that your parents obviously came from a different generation, different mentality. That's going to be a big factor. But I wonder why that particular generation didn't think about just the very... Maybe they overlooked this. Maybe I'm being a bit mean. But like the concept that like your child going out to the adult world should at least know how to just kind of take care of themselves just in case, you know, just... Be mm-hmm. able to, for example, as you mentioned, cook and be able to like prepare food for oneself, um, be able to, you know, live alone. Like I think living alone as a concept is much harder than people realize. Like even things like, and I, I, I bet that generation just never really dealt with, with this, but like how to deal with loneliness, how to how like healthily deal with that. Like not think, okay, I'm going to go, to a bar and drink my problems away because that'll make me feel better because there's people there hmm no 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 um yeah like i feel like learning how to become an adult is kind of a thing in of itself it's like a science in a sense it's like Mm -hmm. a series of trial and error and ultimately a lot of it comes down to that and also the people you end up fraternizing with like some of it's luck and that luck then determines the kind of lessons that you go through harder or easier depending on how quickly you learn the lessons i guess <laughs> that's so poignant as an asian girl and i know this on- does not only apply to asians but as an asian girl a lot of us are taught oh you should know how to do laundry and cook food so that a man will want to marry you it's less you should learn how to cook food so that you can take in a bunch of healthy nutrients and vitamins and it's more of so that men want to marry you. It's awful. My life does not revolve around some hypothetical man, some hypothetical father or or a husband or any of that. Okay, let's probe that a little bit more. Because, I mean, I think it's clear, yeah, you, you've probably since day one always been quite opinionated, like quite happy to say... Yeah, I've been very opinionated. Yeah, like just quite happy to say, like, well, actually... 
and I think that's good. You know, it's good to have that kind of strong conviction, especially at a young age when you've got adults sort of saying like, no, this is how the world works. And you're like, well, what about this? Uh, given that in mind, I imagine you often challenged your parents on a lot of these kind of older stereotypes and said, well, mm -hmm. what if I want to go out and just make my own career? What, what if maybe I don't want to have children? Like, did you pose those kind of questions to them? How did they take that? How did that kind of those arguments ensue? And it's not, it's not I want to sit and focus on arguments, but like, I guess what <laughs> I want to kind of focus on is more the the challenge aspect, like how you navigated that and ultimately pushed through and then, you know, became the successful person yeah. you are now a lot of cuddle clients like me because i showcase my personality they appreciate my conviction but the best part is that i'm not highly opinionated so i can attract more wealthy male clients it's <laughs> that's just that's just how i am and yeah. and people gravitate towards that energy and it's and it's copacetic and so like you you brought up children and i have very strong opinions about uh children and i don't think there's one right way to mm. raise a child but i do have a lot of opinions like children should be exposed to like a multitude of angles and one of the things i hated as a child I would be told things like, this is the correct way to interpret this like old piece of English literature. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't like this book and my opinion is valid. Honestly, why are you trying to get um, 14 year olds to care about Romeo and Juliet? Oh God. I mean, it is possible to get them to like Shakespeare, but mm -hmm. we gotta, we, we we don't need to treat children like adults and that's fine. There are books intended for adults and there are books intended for kids and there are reasons behind that. But if you want to get children interested in, you know, Shakespeare, you gotta, you gotta speak to them like a child because they are children. You gotta meet them where they're at. Well, just, just talking about Shakespeare as well. I was talking about this in a live stream the other day, because uh -huh. we obviously in England did Shakespeare to death. And the biggest problem I found with Shakespeare, other than having to try and read it in yieldy English without a translation, what were you thinking? Like, we need to be able to know what it says. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, they're plays. They're supposed to be performed, not read. If we'd yeah. have performed them in class, yeah, and we could have had fun with it. It wouldn't have to be serious. But if we'd have performed them, we would have seen how it's supposed to be and where the entertainment value comes from. If you sit down and just read the plays, they're boring. They're so boring because they're not supposed to be interpreted in that manner. Exactly. You know? That's that was the most frustrating thing. Because I remember when I finally did watch, like, you know, um, some of the movie adaptations. We're not going to count Romeo and Juliet because that's trash the, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming you saw the same one that i saw the i've horrible... seen both the yield english one and the uh leonardo dicaprio one. yeah that or train wreck because uh, <laughs> well, that's the thing I, I think i don't know if we saw the oldie one the oldie one is acceptable it's what it's supposed to be that leonardo dicaprio one like oh that was just I have so school. oh oh it's such torture man 
I don't know what they were trying to do. I guess they were just trying just to modernize. Just guns into Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, it's like it doesn't. No, oh, just bad. But no, but there were some good adaptations. I saw a really good version of uh, Macbeth. Um, much ado about nothing. You know, like it, it, there's there's a lot of good in Shakespeare. But yeah, the way they they teach it and the way you um, to your your bigger point with that is like they tell you this is how you have to interpret this. This is how you have to do this. And it's like well. You know, everyone interprets things in different ways. If me and you both see um, a car crash at the side of the street, we're going to interpret that in different ways. And we might have a very different analysis of the same event. And it's like, that's just part of being human. And when you sit and you go, okay, well, who's telling the truth? It's like, well, we could both be telling the truth. It's both our individual truths based on how we see the world. And, you know, yes, you could say like one of us is lying, one of us is not. But like, if we're both telling the truth and we have a different story, that comes down to interpretation and analysis. So it's, it's interesting. Um, I want to just go back to near-death experiences and ask, because a lot of the people that I've had on the show that have spoken about it have spoken about kind of like, quote-unquote, like paranormal experiences. Um, one guest I had on the show, um, Mr. Gail Chingon, spoke about this idea of seeing something to the effect of like a million different screens and just kind of taking that in and, and, you know, but he was out for a while and then he came back, but that's what he saw during that time. Did you see anything like that in your experiences? What do you recall? I don't think I've ever had sleep paralysis or I don't think I've ever been in a coma. I, (laughs) I, do watch a lot of uh you know the mystery files ghost files paranormal stuff on youtube but i i don't know what my beliefs are on ghosts i do think we could revamp a lot of ghost stories because so many of them are like so this one person in the 1800s and i'm like okay people have died since then where are the ghosts who are like singing what is love by hathaway because <laughs> if i died if i died today i would definitely be you know partying with the other dead people singing what is love and and it's just like what you said with shakespeare because it is possible to make interesting adaptations of really old pieces of work i love historical fiction when it comes to broadway musicals i don't read the books i'm sorry i don't read historical fiction books but uh, i'm sure there's plenty of great ones but i love i love theater and some of my favorite broadway musicals are historical fiction like six that's about king henry the eighth's six wives and it's it's a comedy but it's also performed by like a girl group of rock stars telling their stories about what their life was pre-marriage and then during marriage and and it's, it's just a very interesting way of teaching historical fiction and where was i going with this um like we gotta we gotta make paranormal shit accessible like like musicals i say that knowing damn well that tickets to uh broadway theaters are astronomical but um it's just 
when we, people hear the word adaptation, they most often think of a movie. And there are a lot of good movie adaptations out there, but so many, <laughs> there's so many bad adaptations out there as well. And so maybe, you know what, maybe we shouldn't default assume that an adaptation is a movie. Maybe we should be like, hmm, what if we turn this book into a video game? Or what if, what if we turn this into uh, a musical? Why haven't we tried that? Like, A couple of final quickfire questions for you. What do you value most in life and why? I'm pausing for dramatic effect, even though I know that. <laughs> um, Drum roll, please. As cliche as it sounds, I think... I think love is the most important thing in life because... I don't think you can measure it on some kind of metric scale. It's a unifying thing. Like, we don't have to speak the same language, but we could still be familiar with love. And I could talk about languages all day. Like, I don't think we need to globalize the entire planet with English, but... We already have love that that already unifies us all, and there there I don't think there's only one right way to love, but that in of itself is beautiful, and I say this knowing damn well that Pride Month is coming very soon. I'm I'm not doing this on purpose, but uh. Love is the most valuable thing in the world, and that has that has nothing to do with capitalistic value. Uh, in a way, capitalism is the antithesis of love, and I feel like that's going to be like the tagline for for this episode. Capitalism is the antithesis of love, but love is supposed to feel freeing. I don't. I can't do what so many of my Asian peers do, and that is understand that their parents could be doing better, but they'll just keep a distance from them for self-preservation reasons. Like, when I came out to my mom as polyamorous and as a sex worker and all that, um, she doesn't know I'm a professional cuddler yet, but when I came out to my mom, it was... It was not like one day I sat them down at a table in front of me and told them. It was my mom Googling stuff because I told her that I was volunteering with an organization. And then she Googled the organization and then she put two and two together and was like, are you a sex worker? And I was like, yeah. It was not how I wanted her to find out. I wanted, I would rather she know these things because I told her, but I was like, I'm not going to lie to you. I am. And we still talk to each other, but she, she she knows a little about sex work, but I can't really blame her because I think I'm the only sex worker in her life who is out about it. I genuinely think that we all have met a sex worker before or 
we all have relatives who are sex workers, but they're just not open about it. And like everyone has a right to privacy, but like I said before, I think people can change if you give them grace. And so if I just never talk about a very important part of my life, I can't really expect them to as much as I want them to go out on their own and and do some empirical research and all that good stuff, like I can't. <laughs> it can be overwhelming to have to find out about all of these all of these things on your own. And when I was a professional cuddler at nineteen, I literally was all alone. I had no mentor. I I didn't even have like an accountant who has done taxes for professional cuddlers before. I was all alone. I was doing all of my own research. I had nobody to look up to and and as as much as I wish that other people would uh go out on their own and explore it's it can be overwhelming to do that and that's why I have my podcast and that's why I'm you know radically honest and try to give people the benefit of the doubt so I got to ask you've classified yourself quite a few times now as being a sex worker Mm -hmm. and is that so does that mean that professional cuddle, cuddling is classified under that or is this something you do in addition to that like oh i do things in addition to that okay um, i don't mind when people mm -hmm. uh consider professional cuddling as sex work but that is because both sex workers and professional cuddlers lack legal protection. There mm. are no laws, at least in the United States, that say sex workers can do whatever they feel comfortable doing or professional cuddlers are legally allowed to do whatever it is that they feel comfortable doing. There's no legal protection. So I, I don't really mind. Is there crossover between those two things? Do you have like a lot of clients that you've had who've been... I don't know what the word would be, cuddle clients that have then transitioned into more than that? Or are these things two separate worlds for you? Like, how does that work? I do try to keep them separate. Mm. I say that as someone who uses the same stage name. Um, uh, when, when I started as a professional cuddler, I, I went by Marlene and then I went by Felicity for everything else. Now I go by Felicity for everything because I... It's just, I knew from the get-go not to use my legal name. It's too <laughs> dangerous to use your legal name for cuddling or sex work or any of that. And it's, it's like, it's like mind-blowing to me that so many professional cuddlers use their legal name. Some of them use their first name and last name. And that just, it scares me, man. I, I'm not trying to judge them, but like they tell me, oh yeah, my parents my my family knows that i do this and so that's why i'm using my government name but they'll tell me stuff like oh yeah my family they mainly use facebook and and uh i say things on twitter that i don't really want my family to know mm. but i'm trying to think from the cuddle client's perspective they might think oh I guess it's okay for me to add this person on Facebook or add this person on Instagram or LinkedIn or, or what, whatever, because see, there's no right. like distinction between personal life and um, snuggling work life. 
So, okay, interesting question. And do you think that that then, by by using your original name, that kind of encourages parasocial relationships? Maybe. Ooh. Uh, probably yes. And also, there are some professional cuddlers who are okay with being interviewed on news stations. I've tried mm. doing that. I don't like it. I prefer the podcast hosts. Um, Why is that? And I could. I mean, here's where I stroke your ego, but it's just podcast hosts are so much more open-minded and nice than <laughs> um, news journalists because they have like a boss breathing down their shoulder and being like, "You need to do this by this date," and my editor will needs to you know edit your piece by this hour and mm. it's there's this bureaucracy to it and when you get featured on the news you have no idea who who sees and yes with podcast hosts i have no idea who listens but i think a lot of good things happen from speaking on various podcasts like i just cuddled a client who said I first heard about you through your interview on this other podcast. And then I discovered your podcast and now it's like, I'm here and oh, wow. sure, maybe that could happen if I was interviewed on a news station, but chances are the article is going to have some kind of clickbait title and then they'll have, I don't know about stock images, but they'll definitely like sign off with something slimy. Like, wow, it must be great to be this person. I know what you mean. There's the kind of agenda thing. I mean, it's a, something that I've always tried to completely avoid, like with my show, because at the end of the day, A, I don't like this idea of trying to catch people out or like deliberately. I think when you try to deliberately make other people look bad, I think that says more about you than it does that other person. Mm -hmm. You know, like if someone has agreed to come on your show and you just like berate them the whole time. I just feel like that's just low. I don't know. I just, it doesn't sit well with me, you know? And the whole point of my show is supposed to be sharing people's life stories, sharing mm -hmm. positive stories, tr trying to be positive, trying to, you know, and like, it's not always going to be sunshine daisies. You know, we, we've, we've discussed some pretty heavy stuff today and there's mm -hmm. some stuff in, and that's real life. You know, that there, there is some horrible things we, we have to go through. But I think it's really powerful, a woman like yourself, talking about these things. And for people that will be listening to this and watching it, you know, it could mean everything to them. It could be like, wow, okay, this per seeing this person talk candidly about this has inspired me or has given me strength going through this particular experience, et cetera, et cetera. When I see and, those... Sorry, go yeah. on, yeah. Go, go for okay. it. Okay. And something that I hate that a lot of news websites are doing is that they're paywalling the entire thing. I hate to give shout outs to the new to the New York Times. <laughs> but the New York Times is guilty of doing this. And I would hate to not be paid for an interview with a you know, a news publication company that rakes in millions every single year, but then they paywall news, which should be free, and then mm -hmm. like I don't wanna have to fucking pay to read an interview that I was a part of and, and then tell my audience, hey, go read my interview but then they have to pay to read my fucking op-ed on the new york times and i don't think there are any podcasts where every single episode is paywalled 
Uh, yeah, I mean, like with 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 me, like I do this show for free. The Christian mm-hmm. Movie Podcast will always be free. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do a show for for Patreon that is behind a paywall, mm-hmm. and the difference there is that you know the two shows are very different. So this show is all about my guests and the topics. It's nothing, even though it's got my name on it, it's really nothing to do with me. Um, but then like my show on Patreon again, has my name in it, but that is all about me. So if you want to sit and listen to me talk for like an hour or two, that's the show to go to patreon.com slash Christian. I do that on my Patreon. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but it's different because when people support you on Patreon, that is money paying for your electricity bill, your, you know, your internet, all of that. Whereas when you give your money to, you know, the New York times, that is just buying the CEO, another like yacht to show off to their other wealthy friends. I think think what you said before is spot on as well. Like you shouldn't have to pay for the news. And secondly, um, It'd be one thing if you were like an independent newspaper and you were just trying to keep the thing going. You say like, oh, hey, guys, please donate. Like it helps us keep going like that. I'd understand. But when it's, as you say, like the New York Times or whatever or um, or the independent here in the UK. And it's like, do you really need that much money? Like, can you or like, can't you do like a, a service where it's like the majority of the stuff is free, but some of it's paid? I mean, because that's the mentality I go for with with what I do. Like, I kind of see like the stuff on Patreon as being like, okay, well, that stays free, uh, that stays paid, and I know it dis- disappoints some of my audience, but it's like, well, eighty percent of what I do is is um, free, and this twenty percent is like not free. That's reasonable. Mm-hmm. If ninety percent of what you do is paid, um, what's the point? Like, how are people ever gonna like? Do you know what I mean? Like, you have to look at mm-hmm. it in more general terms like your average audience is you know you're working people people that are earning money and if they decide to s- subscribe to you that's huge you know that one dollars mm-hmm. five dollars whatever that could be like so much to them that could be like you know a meal i know for me that's a lot like you know it's i'm always very thankful like when my audience is like oh i'm sorry this is all i could donate i'm like you don't understand how huge this is like not only and for me it's not about not just about money it's about like that support and what it represents you know like whenever i get a nice comment or someone watches a video or they take the time to sit in a live stream and and interact with me or any kind of support to me is valuable and it's all stuff that you should celebrate and be thankful for you know if you're just asking your audience to just continuously pay for everything it's like i don't know man i feel like that's very alienating and just kind of jarring to be honest you know at that point, it feels like a pyramid scheme, or kind of, yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, uh, it's just the amount of times I've I've wanted to check out a creator, but then I found out like all of the stuff that they're advertising is is paid. It, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, like my show, for example, again, I'm talking about myself here, so I'll keep it this week. Mm-hmm. Um, I do the podcast once a week. It's free. Mm-hmm it's clipped up the patreon's uh twice twice a month and it's like i I do that by design to kind of leave some time let it you know build up some stuff i work on it i i put the same level of effort that i put in the podcast um same strategy and everything but it's just you know 
I guess in my mind, it's like, oh, you know, you, you subscribe for this, but you get like, no, you're supporting me and I'm transparent about that, but you also get like a kind of um, something that I've taken time to work on and it takes time. And I think like that's a lot fairer. Like just be transparent with your audience. Let them know what you're doing. Like, you know, and people, I think, will respond well to that. You know, mm-hmm. it's when you start trying to like grift and and like deceive and stuff or or like just outright just take all their money that it's a bit like, well, why should I bother? You know? Yeah. And uh, no shade to other professional cuddlers, but a lot of professional cuddlers, their social media is just them sharing a bunch of different articles talking about the um, the medical benefits to cuddling. Like, it raises your dopamine levels. It raises your serotonin levels, your oxytocin, like, your endorphins, all, all of the happy hormones. And that's great and all, but, like, don't don't share articles from people where you have to pay to read it and oh i see i hope there are some professional cuddlers listening to this but if you're gonna share an article please be decent and make sure that you're not using a source where your viewers have to pay to just read the article like when i so on my podcast i very often um i'll include quotes from articles that i feel are relevant to the episode's topic but I never choose news articles where you have to pay to read. Yeah. Like, fuck that. You shouldn't have to pay to read my <laughs> bibliography. <laughs> I want people to check my sources. And I can't, you know, halt them by paywalling. Yeah. No, I get it, man. I agree. I completely agree. What's the best advice you've ever received? Mm. Oh gosh, this is so early 2010s Tumblr girl, but hey. don't set yourself on fire to keep others warm. And Damn. it when I was a teenage girl, I interpreted that as a as a just a specific situational type of advice. I didn't think of it as cyclical and so Mm. if someone's a chronic people pleaser that's a lot of my cuddle clients um if someone's a chronic people pleaser that's a cycle it like keeps feeding into itself and so it's hard to break out of a cycle you know one situation that's one thing but a cycle that's all that's a whole nother ball game and people don't stop being people pleasers overnight and I wish I could just wave a magic wand over someone's head and then they just stop doing something that's harmful to them. But life is not that simple. And so I would say the best advice I've heard is don't set yourself on fire to keep others warm. What's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far? Ooh, life lesson. Uh, Hmm. This is a quote from a singer that I've been paying attention to since I was around 14, so 10 years. Wow. Um, This singer got a tattoo, which I think has been lasered off. (laughs) I don't know. I I highly doubt this person is tuning in, but um, 
I remember them getting a tattoo saying, do it for yourself, you are alone. And this applies to so many mediums, whether you're an author, a podcast host, a YouTuber, whatever. When you start out, chances are you have no audience. Mm -hmm. You have no audience. You can't wait for people to subscribe to you and then release something. You got to do it for yourself because you are alone. Like when you're writing down song lyrics or when you're writing down poetry, you are literally alone. You're not saying it in front of an audience already unless you do like improv comedy or whatever. But I guess that's not applicable. Like last night I was speaking at this one festival. It's a 10 day festival ordeal. I'm speaking two nights and uh, I read erotica that I've written. And I wrote, I wrote that erotica a year ago. I never would have guessed that I would be reading it in front of a live audience for a festival that is annual and started around the time that I was born. Oh, Matt. Yeah. yeah. Oh, congratulations, man. Well, thank you. That's amazing. Um, as we draw things to a close today, do you have any upcoming projects or some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Okay. So, um, another thing that my color clients really like about me is how passionate I am about dancing. And so, uh, July 29th of 2023, I am going to be performing at this one fundraiser and I try to perform at at least one fundraiser per month but I've always done um gigs in the bay area in San Francisco you know northern California but this is my first gig in Seattle Washington which is the Pacific Northwest part of North America and I'm going to be performing at this one fundraiser for a charity that's local to Seattle but, you know, it's for a good cause and I can afford the plane tickets. I can afford the hotel. So Saturday, July 29, 2023, I'm going to be dancing at this one fundraiser. And it's, you know, it's in the downtown part of Seattle. So not exactly like Pike Place, the Space Needle, but like decently close. And I am in the middle of writing a book about professional cuddling because I care about my work outliving me. I don't want to be on this planet just to survive. I want to create art and hope that people still pay attention to my art after I pass. And so I'm writing a book and I would love to have beta readers and honestly the less you know about the cuddle industry the better because i want this book to be understandable by anyone and you can reach me at felicityazara at gmail.com i am also going to be speaking at this one convention in baltimore which is near washington dc which is the capital of the united states so i'm going to be in baltimore from june 15 to june 18 i am dancing at and also speaking at a panel at international pole convention and i would love it if people attend the sex worker panel uh, i don't know who the other panelists are yet but we're going to be speaking about sex work for a 
approximately an hour. And it's also my first speaking gig in Baltimore, Maryland. So that's exciting. And if you are a professional cuddler in the Baltimore area, I would love to meet up with you while I'm in Baltimore. If you're a professional cuddler in uh, Seattle, I would love to meet up with you while I'm in Seattle, even though I'm only there for like 20 hours. Um, I think that's all I need to plug. Also, listen to my podcast. Yeah, I second that. Go check out Felicity's podcast. It's been an amazing, amazing show. I just want to say a massive thank you for for being on the show and being so candid. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you, Christian. And to the listeners of the Christian Reef podcast, as always, be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one. <laughs>